visitors with us, family members, you're very welcome. This is a place of love and a place of fellowship and joy, and I trust that you are joyful and peaceful this Christmas season. I'd like you to uh, take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, taking a break from Matthew for the Christmas message this year. I believe that it is God's doing that once a year, all around the world, Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. However, Christmas is not just the celebration of Christ's birthday. It is also the celebration of the greatest miracle of all. This morning... We've been singing of the greatness of God's miracle. Passages that were read uh, highlight the historical narrative behind it. But as we think about Christmas on Christmas Eve, I do want you to consider that the birth of God's Son, technically uh, referred to as the incarnation, is truly the greatest miracle of all. And God has designed it so that every year we are reminded of it. Just think of the fact that every single year all around the world, people are listening to carols being sung in shopping malls and restaurants. It's going to be on everybody's TV tonight at the carols at the domain. And they're all extolling this greatest of all miracles. When you look at the words that we sang this morning, They just simply combine truths that are beyond all human comprehension. And yet every single year, whether or not people understand what it all means, uh, the world hears about it, they sing those words themselves, and we don't just sing them on a single Lord's Day or just on Christmas Day, but it seems that we delight in singing them for several weeks in December verses and choruses about this greatest of all miracles. So as we approach Christmas Day tomorrow, well, there are many things that we could extract from the Christmas story. I want to call your attention to this miracle and focus on the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is the combination, of course, of full humanity and full deity, but the joining of these two things is the greatest of all miracles. And while we consider the babe in the manger uh, looking like any other baby that is born on Christmas Day, it does seem more challenging, I think, to consider him in the sense of his true deity rather than his humanity. And so this is what I'd like us to meditate on uh, this morning. Now, I've asked you to turn to the Gospel of John because John is the Gospel above all the other Gospels who proclaims his deity. Uh, someone has made the observation that could be, it could be said of this Gospel what the governor at the feast in Cana said when our Lord turned water into wine. You remember that he said, you've kept the good wine until last. And the Gospel of John 
is the one that was kept until last because it is the very best in what it proclaims to us about Jesus Christ. Now you can see this particular purpose of proclaiming His deity in John chapter 20 towards the end of His gospel. Theologian once said that uh, when we lock our homes, we tend to hide the key either at the front door or the back door. And that's often the way it is with the books of our Bible. The Holy Spirit has guided the writers to leave the key to their messages either towards the beginning of their book or at the end of their book. And in this case, it's not only at the beginning, but it's also stated as the purpose at the end in chapter 20, verse 31. Verse 30 says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs, many other miracles in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, in the Gospel of John. And the fact is, they aren't all recorded in all of the Gospels combined. But then he says, these are written for this purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John is telling us here that his whole purpose for writing this book is to declare that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-promised Messiah, and on top of that, He is the very Son of God. And when we believe this truth, He says at the end of the verse, we actually gain eternal life for ourselves. Now, this book is so wonderfully put together because the first 18 verses of chapter 1 are an introduction to this unique person, primarily in terms of his deity. Uh, if you read verses 1 to 18 and you isolated all of the statements that are made about him, you will find that there are a great many, and they're quite varied in what they say. But none of them is more important than what is said at the beginning of verse 14. Look at it, if you will. It says, and the Word became flesh. And that one statement is the summary of the greatest miracle of all. The Word became, it was made, He was made flesh. And so this will be our subject for this morning. Now, look back at verse 1. You can see that the Lord Jesus is first introduced in this gospel by a remarkable and a unique title, uh, the Word. Verse 14 says, the Word was made flesh, and the Word is how we are first introduced to Him when it says, in the beginning was the Word. Nowhere else in the gospels, and not even in this gospel after verses 1 and 14, is our Lord referred to again by this remarkable title. And that should cause us, I think, to ask the initial question, why is this being said of him? And why is it being said here? Well, the answer to that is actually given in this introduction. If you look at the end of verse 18, it says, he has declared him. Other versions say he has explained him. This is referring to the Word, who the verse says is the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, 
And then you have this incredible statement that he, the only begotten son, has declared or explained the Father. So if you're asking why our Savior is referred to by this unique expression, the word, the answer then is given in this verse, and this also I think is where we find the blessing. Because it isn't merely that he came and spoke to us about the Father. It isn't that he came and spoke to us on behalf of the Father. That was true for all of the prophets. That was true for all of the apostles. That's true of what I'm doing right now. I'm speaking about the Father. I'm speaking on behalf of the Father. That isn't what this expression is referring to. It means more than that. It's actually speaking of our Savior as the personification, as the embodiment of the Father's speech. It's the fact that He Himself, in His person, is the revelation of God. He is the Word of God. And Scripture does not want us to forget the significance of this, which is why the only other place where He is referred to in this way is in the last book of our New Testament, and nearly at the end of that book, the book of Revelation. This book also was written by the Apostle John, and he writes in chapter 19 about the second coming of Christ to earth. When that happens, he will not come in lowliness, he will not come in humility, as he did through the womb of a virgin the first time. Instead, when he comes back, it says he, it will be uh, triumphant. It will be glorious, be leading the armies of heaven. And in Revelation 19.13, if you want to know why, it says that his name is called the Word of God. He is the very personification of God's speech to humanity. Now, with that in mind, what sort of person must he be? Well, he's introduced to us in the first two verses of John 1 in terms of his nature. Let's read those verses now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There are three things we are told here, and they all enable us to understand as much as human beings can understand the nature of his person, and they all basically point to the same thing. In the first place, we are told that he pre-existed the beginning. In the beginning, the Word already was, implying that he pre-existed the beginning. Now, what is the beginning referring to? Well, by the Holy Spirit's design, those words are only used one other time in the Bible in an unqualified way, meaning that they're thrown on the page without anything qualifying the point of time it's, it's referring to. It's just in the beginning. And I'm sure you know that the only other time this phrase is found is as the opening statement of which book? Genesis 1.1. And if you compare the Greek text of John 
with the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the expression is identical. Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God. John 1, 1, written many millennia later, says, in the beginning was the Word. Genesis, of course, is the book of beginnings. The word Genesis means origin. Genesis is the record of the origin of everything, all of creation, marriage, the fall, redemption, the nations, God's choice of a particular man to be the father of a chosen nation. Genesis is the record of the beginnings of everything. But pre-existing that, God was and the Word was. And please note the importance of the verb was, which is a simple verb of being. This is not a word for coming into existence. This is not a word for being born or made. It's simply a, a word of being. In other words, in the beginning, God existed. In the beginning, the Word existed, and therefore, He must be God. Notice the second statement in verse 1, when it comes to really understanding His nature, which says, and the Word was with God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. John 1.1, in the beginning, the Word was with God, as if there is some kind of distinction between God and the Word. He was present with God, but before the human mind then arrives at the wrong conclusion, the third statement in verse 1 comes back and tells us that actually the Word itself was absolute deity. The Word was God. This is actually emphasized in the original text because the word God is emphatically placed forward in that phrase. So our version reads, and the Word was God, but in the Greek text it reads, and God was the Word, or deity was the Word. And then the second verse circles back, not adding any new information, but it kind of wraps up those three statements into one package. When it says, He that is the word referred to in all the previous statements. He, meaning it's a person, was in the beginning with God. That's a summary of the whole thing. So the words of the ancient Nicene Creed written in 325 A.D., actually found in some of our hymns and carols, those words are true. He is true God of true God expressed as the very speech or revelation of the Father to us. In verse 14, He then became flesh. And on the basis of that, it's natural to ask the question about His relationship to the rest of the material things that came into existence, or what we refer to as the creation. What is his relationship to that? Well, that's why verse 3 is given to us. Look at it. He was in the beginning, but everything that came into existence subsequent to that came into, into being. He was, 
they came into being. All right, so what was his relationship to that? Well, it says that they all came into being or they were all made through him. And there's no exceptions because without him, nothing was made that was made. So take the category of things that have always existed. There's only one thing in that category, God. Everything else is in the category of something that came into being. And when you define that category, there's not one thing in the circle of those things that came into existence that did not come into existence through him. Now, that can be a little confusing, I think, even to Christians, because our perception tends to be that God the Father is the Creator. So I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 8, which is a cross-reference that will explain this for us, I think, the best. 1 Corinthians 8, in verse 6, you have a very helpful statement when it comes to understanding the source of creation and then the relationship of the Word to what is being created. Paul writes, Yet for us, and in, con- in context, this is a, uh, he's contrasting uh, this to idolatrous people, those who don't have the Scriptures, right? Yet for us, who do have the Scriptures, who know the truth, there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and therefore we for Him. And then he says, there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we live. Notice the obvious difference between the prepositions that he used here. When it comes to the Father, all things are of Him, or that could be translated from Him. But when it comes to the Son, all things are through Him. That is a distinction. And it's explaining the arrangement that was made in eternity past between the members of the Godhead where God the Father agreed to be the source of all things. That all things would come out of Him. But when it comes to the mechanism of those things coming into being, All of those things are through the Son. In other words, He is the member of the Godhead who brings into being the determinations of the Father. So you have the Father's determinations, His will, all right? It is the Son who gives them expression through creation, whether they be visible or or invisible things. And 1 John 1, 3 says, this is true for every single thing. This is true of big things, like the Son. The Son is of the Father, but through the Son, S-O-N. It's true of the moon. It's true of the stars. It's true of all big things. It's true of all little things, like the specks of dust that you see in the sunbeams coming through your window. It's true of the molecules, the smallest of our cells. They are of the Father, but through the Son. It's true of invisible things like energy 
heat, wind, gravity. It's also true of all living things, like the caterpillars and the kookaburras and the ants. It's true of Adam, the first man. It's true of his wife, Eve. It's true of the whole lineage of the human race or Adam's descendants. They are all of the Father. They are all through the Son. In other words, it's true of all flesh, which is what makes verse 14 especially incredible. Because it says that this person who existed in the beginning and was in some sense with God, and yet he himself was God, and who brought all things into creation, including flesh, all right, what an inconceivable statement to now say that this person became flesh. The Word became flesh. And this is now the fourth aspect of the Word I want to focus on. What does it mean for Him to become flesh? Well, the term flesh... I think we all agree, certainly refers to our bodily humanity. But have you also considered that it refers to the person inside your body or the soul? That's why the ancient theologians, as they worked through the scriptural revelation on the nature of our Lord, concluded that it wasn't just a matter of Him having a body, But he also had what they called a reasonable soul, meaning a truly rational inner person. It's a human person on the inside as a soul, as well as having an external body. And then notice the stark contrast between what is said in verse 1 and what is said in verse 14. These verbs are different when it says, in the beginning, was the Word, but then verse 14, the Word became flesh. I mean, he, he didn't become the Word. In the beginning, He was the Word. However, He wasn't always flesh. He became flesh. So He was the Word eternally with God and very God. But At a certain point in human history, at the time of God's determination, the world's creator of flesh became what he had never been. He became flesh. How did that happen? What does it mean? Well, the instrument in his becoming flesh is explained with certain particulars in the Gospel of Luke. And then the Gospel of Matthew confirms it to us. In those passages, we are told two great facts. One is that this actually took place in the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.4 when he was made of a woman. Now, the historical record of that is given in Luke 1 and 2. He is made of a woman, not through a woman. In other words, it isn't that the Son of God was simply embedded in Mary and then nine months later He emerged in birth. 
It's that the Word was made of a woman. And the Scripture assures us that His human nature had the very substance of His earthly mother, Mary. That's why in Hebrews 2.14, God says that inasmuch as the children, that's us, we are the children of God, have partaken of flesh and blood. And that's what we are, flesh and blood. So inasmuch as that is true, He Himself likewise shared in the same. He partook of flesh and blood, and it was not the flesh and blood of His earthly father, it was entirely the substance of His earthly mother, Mary. Now, I do need to add, there's only one exception to this being the case, and this is mentioned in Romans 8, when it says there that God sent His own Son. Now listen to this. He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That doesn't mean in the likeness of flesh. His flesh was our flesh. But as people looked at Him, it appeared to them that His flesh was entirely like our flesh, even in this sense, being sinful flesh. In other words, God sent His Son and His flesh was so much like ours, so truly a human substance of flesh and blood that it has to be qualified so that every Bible reader will understand that when it came to being sinful flesh, it only appeared to be sinful flesh. But the fact is, it was an entirely sinless human substance. It really is a remarkable thought. Now, the other thing we are told is the means of Him becoming flesh. But when we ask ourselves how it's possible that the eternal Word, the eternal second person of the Godhead became flesh, I mean genuine human flesh on an eternal being. When we ask how that can even happen, you really want to remember that the first person to ask that question was the first person who was told about it. That question has been there from the beginning. When you encounter skeptics who raise that issue today, you want to remind them that, you know what, this has always been in question. But the Bible itself gives us the answer. Mary asked the angel Gabriel, how can this be? And the only answer that was given to her is the facts of the case, although we can never fully explain the mechanism. I mean, no human being can totally explain it. But Gabriel said to Mary, look, the answer to your question is this. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the third person of the Godhead. All things are of the Father. All things came into being through the Son, including the very flesh he would become, but in this case, the third person of the Godhead enters in, and the only explanation we are given is that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Does that explain it to you? Does it really explain it to me? <laughs> but it does give me God's answer, one that I cannot fully grasp. In other words, this is a true miracle. It is the greatest 
of all miracles. That he will be flesh, the flesh of only one human parent, and yet sinless flesh. This is a miraculous work from the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, I want to finish this morning with four conclusions that are very important for us, I think, to understand to some degree. In the first place, this does not mean that the Lord Jesus, our Savior, is somehow a combination of two persons. This is critical. He's not two persons, one of them being the Son of God and the other one being the Son of Mary. Neither is he a third kind of person. He's one person. He's not the fusion of two persons or some combination in any respect of two persons. Secondly, when he became flesh, it doesn't mean that somehow he humanized his deity. Or thirdly, that somehow his humanity was deified. Now, this is also a very important point. When he became flesh, it was one person, the eternal God with an eternal nature of deity, taking a second nature of humanity, both the body and soul of humanity. And when he did so, those two natures did not interact with one another. So that now you have some kind of strange deity, a, a new kind of deity, a humanized deity. Nor does it mean that you have some kind of strange and new form of humanity, a deified humanity. In other words, if I can draw from contemporary culture for a moment, this is not some kind of fictional Marvel character who takes superpowers when he's bitten by a spider so that the spider's DNA fuses with the human DNA. Now you've got Spider-Man. All right? This is, this is two completely different natures in one person. This is something that the early Christians did a great deal of thinking and arguing about for several centuries. It wasn't until the fourth century that it was finally settled at a small place near ancient Constantinople known as Chalcedon, which is uh, Istanbul today. Those early Christians came from great distances when it was very expensive and difficult to travel in order to gather for about three weeks in the fall of 451. And they forged together a statement that they believe captured a great deal of biblical revelation, and then they reduced it down into certain propositions. And among those propositions was this particular point, which they worked very hard on because they they didn't want people to misunderstand and drift into the kinds of heresies that had plagued the church for previous centuries. You know, we tend to be hard on the people who followed those early heresies. But you really have to remember that in many cases, those false positions were adopted by people who were very earnest, professing Christians. 
but they were looking at passages of Scripture. And then they were affirming dogmatically that what they said must be true. But if those verses were true, then there had to be another explanation for other verses that appeared to be contradictory. In other words, if the statements about his human nature were really true, well, then there had to be another way of explaining other statements that appear to teach his full deity. Because he couldn't be fully human and also deity and vice versa. And these kinds of debates, well, they went on for centuries. Well, finally, these men arrived at the position which says that both of those natures, he has to be true deity and true humanity, including the possession of a human soul and a human will, which, by the way, is the only explanation for something like the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when Jesus prayed, uh, not my will, but thine be done. I mean, if both of those things are true, and both of those natures exist in one person, well, then that would explain a statement like that, wouldn't it? So this ancient doctrinal creed had to make it clear that those natures do not mix in him. They do not somehow homogenize in him. The word they used was unconfused. Uh, They also said that they're immutable, meaning that they don't change. The deity doesn't somehow morph to humanity. And the humanity most certainly doesn't change to deity. They exist, and then they said they exist indivisibly. They can't ever be separated from one another. The creed also said that they exist inseparably for all eternity. They cannot be fully divided from one another. They cannot be separated from Him, which means that for all eternity, those two natures exist in the Son of God. Now, all of this basically means that the eternal Son of God, that divine person, did not take to Himself another person, but He took a human nature in addition to His divine nature. And when you and I truly envision the two of those existing in Him simultaneously now, And for all eternity, they should not be mixed in our understanding. They should not be amalgamated in a way that would mean that one or the other is no longer true deity or true humanity. They exist for all eternity as both. Well, fourthly, that leads me to say that these two natures existing right now in Him side by side means that anything that is true of one of those two natures, I mean, think for a moment of anything the Scripture reveals about the experiences of one of those natures as it's recorded in the Gospels or other parts of the New Testament. Think of the actions. Think of the thoughts of those natures, all right? Anything that is true of either one of those two natures can be said truly of the whole person. Now, that is also a very important point, and let me explain why. 
the scripture never speaks of something being done by one of those natures alone. For example, it never says that his humanity died or that his deity ascended back to heaven. It never speaks of something as being done by one nature alone. What it does is speak of things that can only be the property or the attribute of one of those natures, and yet it will speak of those things as being true of him as a person. Now, that is very helpful for us because it explains some of these statements in Scripture that initially just kind of set you back. For example, when Peter's preaching in Acts 3.15, he makes this comment. He says that they put to death the prince of life. Or when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.8, he says they crucified the Lord of glory. It's not that they crucified his humanity. They crucified the eternal Lord of glory. They didn't merely kill his humanity. They killed the prince of life. What about this statement, 1 Timothy 2, which says there's one mediator between God and man, and for a mediator to be that kind of go-between, who would he have to be? Well, listen to this. The man, Christ Jesus. When you understand that what could only be true of the properties of one or the other of the natures can, because of the incarnation, be attributed to the entirety of the person, that explains statements like that. Here's another one. Paul writes to the Galatians. He says, he loved me and gave himself for me. He didn't merely give his humanity. He didn't give his human nature. He gave himself for me. The whole person was crucified. When you grasp that, it explains these kinds of statements that appear complete contradictions to us. In John 8, 58, our Lord said, Before Abraham came into being, I what? I am. Meaning, I am the, I am the pre-existing eternal one. Before Abraham came into being, I am, and yet listen to this. Now the birth of this person was as follows. Matthew 1.18. Matthew also says he began to be about 30 years of age. I mean, this person, the I am, began to be about 30 years of age. These are contradictory statements in our thinking. What about this one? He was asleep in a boat. Yet the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Well, he didn't cease upholding all things by the word of his power when he was asleep in the boat, right? Apparently contradictory statements and yet acceptable by faith if we believe what the scriptures reveal about the eternal second person of the Godhead, the very speech of God to humanity, that person becoming flesh. He didn't become two persons. But he is still the same eternal person, only now with two entirely true natures, so that something said or done or thought 
or stated regarding him, which could only be true of one of those natures, is nevertheless true of him as a person. It's remarkable. And it really helps to explain certain things that would be completely heretical if we did not understand this. Here's a good one. When Paul speaks to the elders at Ephesus, he charges them to carefully shepherd the flock of God. And he makes this statement, which he purchased with his own blood. Now that statement has thrown a lot of theologians. And the argument they put out is this, how can God possibly possess blood? Blood is the property of the humanity of Jesus. There's got to be another way of understanding that statement. No, let the statement stand. Elders are to shepherd the church of God, which he, that is God, purchased with his own blood. You have the same kind of thing in Matthew 24, 36. Here's something you probably have stumbled over as you've read this and kind of wondered what he was talking about. Remember when our Lord was uh, talking about the day and the hour of his second coming to earth, and he said, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, really? But the Father alone. Well, from all eternity, the second person of the Godhead is known. No members of the Godhead have ever learned anything. They've always been entirely omniscient, but this person who is referred to as the Son of God in the, in the Gospels said that even the Son doesn't know. How do you explain that? Well, this person was conceived. It was an actual physical conception. He was formed and developed in the womb. He went full term and was delivered. Then he had to grow. He increased in wisdom and stature. This person is the Son of God. And whatever is stated about either of those natures can be said and is said by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures of the person himself. It's no wonder that the Spirit also says to us that without argument, this is a great mystery. 1 Timothy 3.16, God manifest in flesh. Now, my dear people, I've taken you deep diving today. Freestyle. Holding a breath. But you know, it's only when we stop and give some detailed consideration to things like this as we had this morning that our eyes are open just a little bit to the magnitude of this miracle that is a great mystery to us. It will never be fully explained by any, any human mind alone. It's impossible for us to conceive of this. If you know, we go one way or the other, and we can kind of understand it that way, but to hold them both in, in your hands, as the Scripture teaches it to us, the magnitude of this just blows your mind. But this is the person who is God's final speech to humanity. Hebrews 1.1 says that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. In other words, he spoke to the prophets, he spoke to the apostles in many different ways, at many different times, all right? 
that he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. The son is his final speech. And it's not merely in the form of telling us about God as the other prophets did, but in the sense that he himself, in all of his works and in all of his words, he is the very speech of God the Father. So this season of the year, in particular, we need to have the eyes to see something of that glory. That's what John says in filling out the rest of that verse. He says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. John, of course, Peter and James, they saw that glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But as our Lord walked this earth, everywhere He walked, everything He did, everything He said, that's the glory. It's the glory. So when we read these wonderful passages together at this season of the year, and we sing these carols and these hymns, do we have the eyes to see something of His glory. Well, whenever we do, we have received the speech of the Father to us. We have taken in the revelation. And the wonder is such, my friends, that it brings to us an unspeakable joy because we too behold His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And listen to the end of the verse. Full of grace for us full of grace in giving to us, full of grace receiving us, full of grace forgiving us again and again and again, and full of truth, truth in this world of deceit and lies and misunderstanding about everything, full of truth. This is what God has given to us in the miracle of the incarnation, the greatest miracle of all. Let's pray.